You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome back to Prehistories. I'm Kim Bidolf. Last month I talked to Erin Kavanagh about the book of Taliesin. Have you read it? What did you think? Was there anything that particularly struck you as being indicative of time in the early medieval periods? Was there anything that surprised you? Are there any related works you think that I should read? As you know, this is not my area of expertise. I'm I'm all about prehistory, but that's where we're going today. So that's great. Send me any comments or any questions about last month or about this month's show to me on um, Twitter at prehistpod. Or you can find the show on archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash prehistories. So you can give me some comments there. Another month into the new abnormal and I've been reflecting on how strange it is to be in one place most of the time and not venturing very far from home. I think there is a perception that this is what life was like in the past, you know, that you didn't stray very far, that you stayed put and maybe only saw the next village. But there have now been so many discoveries of long-distance movement of individuals in the archaeological record. You know, like Amesbury Archer, he grew up in the foothills of the Alps and the Neolithic and he ended up buried near Stonehenge. Well, I say Neolithic, it's probably early Bronze Age because he may have brought bronze to Britain, although it would be amazing if we found the one person who did that. There was a late Bronze Age woman from Eitved, I think I'm saying that right, it might not be, in Denmark, who made the journey to southern Germany and back several times, as far as I'm aware, from the most recent evidence. And from later periods, too. I'm just thinking about Vikings as well at the moment. I'm talking to a client whose name I won't reveal about developing a Vikings game. And, you know, I told them my, about one of the most interesting sites that was dug just before 2012, just before the British Olympics, when we held it here, 54 men from Scandinavia, but also from the Arctic regions of Scandinavia and Russia and some of the Baltic states, were found in a mass grave in Weymouth on the south coast of of England. And they dated to about AD 1000. And the, the story is that they were Vikings who had tried to raid, but got caught and massacred by the English. So we seem to find it again and again and again how many people really didn't stray more than just a few miles from their homes in prehistory or at any other time indeed is there just this thing where we have to go different places we feel this itch or is that just some of us and some of us prefer to stay at home and have have actually just enjoyed this lockdown I don't know I think I enjoyed it a little bit to start with but feeling the lack of being able to go and see family and who are all over the country and in other countries too but anyway sorry let's (laughs) let me not get into into that let's introduce the topic of today there's quite a bit of travel in the book that we're looking at today. The book is On Raven's Wing by Morgan Llewellyn. Morgan Llewellyn was not her real name. She was born as Sally Snyder in America, but she became very, very interested in what she called her Celtic past and did a lot of research into Welsh and Irish history and myths, and then wrote tons of stories, all fictional stories around all of the historical and mythological 
events. She apparently had found in her family tree that she was descended from Llewellyn Bower <laughs> himself, which is pretty amazing if true. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's the same as somebody saying they're descended from William the Conqueror if they're from, from England. And it's just really how, mm, okay. That little giggle there that you heard <laughs> was my guest today. Hi, Rena. It's Rena Maguire, everyone. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. We had a little chat and catch up. This is just such a strange time, and it. I I really thought, okay, well, you know, I'm not doing any. I'm not doing my sword fighting. I'm not doing brownies. I'm not doing Pilates. <laughs> I'm not doing any freelance work anymore. I do thankfully have an employed job and a paid job. This has given me some some of my time back so I can rekindle the podcast. So this is, I think, my third one in the new series. And I wouldn't want to speak to anybody else other than Rena at some point because we are old friends now, I think we can say. We most certainly are. <laughs> and I particularly want, I've, I've picked your brains before on this subject and I thought, well, you know, why don't we do a podcast about it? So Rena, you're, you are kind of a, a you're, not just kind of it, you are a specialist in the Irish Iron Age and starting to look at the British Iron Age as well. Is that right? Yes, indeed. The problem with the Irish Iron Age has been nobody really knew when it started properly and certainly not when it finishes. And that complicates a lot of what Morgan Novellan writes about. And it complicated our lives as archaeologists quite considerably over the years. My speciality moves into using horsiness to pick out the threads and try to actually work out when things happened. I know, it's such a big job and you're picking it apart site by site, it sounds like to me. A wee bit, just a wee bit. <laughs> and object by object. Very much so, yep. <laughs> There's going to be quite a few publications out this year from Rena. So I'll obviously, there'll be the link to Rena's social media in the show notes. So do take a look at what she posts about. And there's loads of really interesting stuff. So the, the funny thing is you sh you mentioned the, the horsiness. And uh, Morgan Llewellyn, if we give her her adopted name, was, was a big horsey person as well. So maybe we could start with that, actually. And this, I'm springing this on you because I didn't say we were going to talk about this. But has she got the horsey stuff right in the book do you remember yes uh, <laughs> no no <laughs> oh dear. okay this is where it gets really complicated we have absolutely no you know why england has got places like park in Merck and which i'm probably saying really wrong and lincarig bach etc and well maybe not so much lincarig bach but England has got places like Wet Wang and all the rest of it, where you've got sort of the developed British Iron Age uh, mm. in which you can see manifestations of horsiness. You've even got Flag Fen, where you've got the late Bronze Age horsiness. In Ireland, we're only starting to think, oh, wait, we know we've got horses here. They weren't native. We don't know if they're friends or food or both. And we've found one cheek piece made out of antler, which I did do a paper on with Exorc. Yeah, you did some experimental archaeology, didn't you? That's right. And uh, our librarian in Queen's University was so kind to loan me her horse to do this and tried to actually work out. But the, uh, it's very similar to what we found, what was found at Flag Fen, the antler cheek piece with the holes bored through. This carries a certain balance of how it would be used, the circumstances it would be used, 
So that gives you basically a late, there's a potential of a late Bronze Age in Ireland where they're not basically saying that, you know, Trigger was on the menu. But what's going on after that? There's this big lull that we have no idea what goes on until all of a sudden, bang out of nowhere, it seems to be in sort of fairly murky contexts, if, if we're lucky. That's if we're lucky. And most times they don't have any provenance whatsoever. You find the gorgeous, gorgeous pieces of tack that we associate with Irish equitation. And nobody has ever had a date for them. And whenever I was doing the tour around researches of museums, people had them as being everything from late Bronze Age right through. But the truth is, it's nobody's fault on that score because we just haven't known the dates. There's been many devious ways in which I've hammered down that we can pretty much securely say that these things were being made between about, probably about AD 4050. That's an important date. <laughs> AD 4050. Mm-hmm. Think about it for, for Britain. It's slightly, slightly important in Britain, yes, yeah. Ever so slightly. And because Ireland appears to have friends with benefits, we probably, I think the young folk call the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> with the Roman Empire, and we give you slaves, you give us horses. <laughs> What's not to love about this? And the Irish, of course, were terrible slavers. We are, we were absolutely rubbish human beings in this respect. I mean, just think our most famous saint, St. Patrick, was, was brought over by slavery. And Niall Neagallach mm. was a monster in this res- respect in the early medieval period. I and mean, the fact that he made his living from taking people hostage, and if they were well enough, mm. selling them, selling them back home. And if they weren't, then they were put to work. So Ireland has quite a mucky background. If at this time is something that we do have to admit. But from the Iron Age, nobody actually knows what exactly is going on. And hammering down the period of history in which these things are being made. So then using useware and micro useware and all sorts of experimental work and God knows what, you're able to actually start tying down that the evidence of these pieces shows more that it was for riding horses rather than driving them. Everybody immediately thinks chariots, 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 because those gorgeous Victorian pictures have, you know, like the dashing Cuchulain driving out his chariot and his galloping horses. And of course he has magical horses. They're Irish magical Mm -hmm. horses. They talk and they cry and everything. And they also kick butt. They fight on his behalf. And one is called the uh, Lea Maha, the Graef Maha. And the other is the Dusing England, the Black of Sanglu, where he's actually born. And these are magical horses. Twins, again, you've got that whole thing of duality, which, of course, you get from the late Bronze Age going on in rock art and everything else. So there's a lot of there's a lot of hints that there's already certain mythos are being fed in over the over the period beforehand. Yeah. And I'm not saying there's not chariots here. In fact, uh, you're, there's going to be two papers, first one this Christmas, and the other one then directly after it, please the gods. Whoop, whoop. Yep, which will show that, yes, we did have, but they were rare. I've found the evidence, or not me, strictly speaking, I have to be accurate here. One of my colleagues, Dr. Brian Scott, had went here. Is that what I think it is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Wow. That'll be a joint paper. You always need the oil hands. Whenever they are introduced to new ideas, they bring something very, very special to to rookies like myself, you know? 
I don't know if you can call yourself a rookie anymore, Rena. <laughs> people, it's just, you know, I'm mouthy and people forget I haven't been around for absolute decades. Well, I have. I remember the Iron Age. I went to school on it, but I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> my age at this stage. But yeah, there are vehicles where they're coming from is interesting. The connections with the south of England are interesting. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to be discussed there. As for Morgan Llewellyn being right about chariots, not the way she writes it. Right. But she's still, well, there again, that brings us into the whole situation of the tie-in itself. And it does. How it comes about. She's going, she does a cracking bodice ripper um, of its type regarding <laughs> yeah. and bringing it and bringing it to the masses. It's just another version of the story. And it's a story that has exactly. been retold and retold and retold. And wee bits get added yeah. and wee bits get taken away. And people make it relevant to their period of time. And that's the beauty or the nightmare, depending on your, your outlook. You're right, exactly. Off the tie-in. Yeah, we've we've mentioned it briefly. We haven't really explained that the on Raven's Wing is the subtitle is the story of the tie-in, and it's the tie-in. Bokuli is the mainly it's the cattle raid of Cooley, isn't it? That one, but this story is slightly bigger than that. It's it's more of more stories from the Ulster cycle with the birth of. Kuhalin and how he got his name and then all the way through to his death. Sorry, guys, that's a bit of a spoiler there. <laughs> he dies. He does go through to his... He, di- he dies at the end, yeah. So, but obviously the central part of the book is about the cattle raid. Yes, there's three recensions now to understand the background of it. Past archaeologists have taken it really quite literally. That's... I have mixed feelings about this. It is a horrifically, horrifically disturbed context in which if you know what you're looking for, both linguistically, not my area, and artifactually, much more my area, you'll have a much better idea of which parts are early medieval, which parts are getting into the medieval era per se, and which parts just might be before 400 AD. That is the problem Imagine the worst stratigraphy you ever walked into where there had been earthquakes and rebuilt houses and God knows what. And you could see, you think to yourself, oh, look, that strata joins up. No, God, no, it doesn't. It's a way on to something else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty much what the tie-in is. And I'll explain. There's three recensions. Now, when we talk about recensions, we're talking about versions of it that start off. Now, there's the as part of a much bigger, as you quite correctly say, called the Ulster Cycle. And within that, that contains stories like the Sorrowful Tale of Dirty and the Sons of Ushnach. It contains all the big weepies, yeah? Yeah. Which lead in, because this is an era of heroes we're talking about. These are iconic. And here in Ireland, we grow up with accepting that legend. I mean, if you listen to The Horse Slips, but the entire album of the tie-in and The Book of Invasions, both of them uh, take their inspiration from their prog rock. They're brilliant. (laughs) And I start every seminar with one, which uh, doesn't really go well with undergraduates. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It goes well with the cultures. Even to the modern day, you've got reworkings of it by groups like the Decemberists who brought out a mini-album called The Tie-In. So there's three recensions of it. One we know for a certain, which is uh, the 11th century thereabouts, and that's the Labar Nahudra. Now, the Labar Nahudra means the Book of the Dun Cow. 
it was a dun cow vellum that it was written on, they say. Right. Either some people say that it is earlier than the 11th century. There's a person called Romanus Molotov, I hope I've got that name right, who says that it was possibly the first section of it was actually written 670 AD. Wow. In Bangor, in County Entry, or County Down, very polite in Bangor, so they are. They'd love that idea. Uh, wonderful monastery was referred to as the seat of angels and everything else, but firmly early medieval. Great place for scholarliness and everything else. Now, there's the Labernahudra, mm-hmm. then there's the Yellow Book of Lacan, and it's probably written down in the 14th century, and there's a big overlap between that and the Labernahudra. Then there's the Book of Leinster, but we don't really. Uh, that was we know that's around about the 12th century AD mm, mm. because there's a whole wee intro to by the wee clerk who's writing it, and there's another ascension, but we don't talk about that. There's been a whole lot of translations. The earliest ones obviously are in Old Irish, and that's a skill all in itself. Then there's Middle Irish, mm. there's Early Modern Irish. Tragically, I don't speak any of them with any great understanding whatsoever, not like a lot of my colleagues, like people like Jim Mallory. This is his territory very firmly. Within those three books, there's different versions and there's overlaps. Some cut short and others carry the story right through. Mm. So whenever monks and etc. put them together in the early medieval period, they were, remember, these are young fellows from places like Northumberland, Scandinavia. They're very well-read young lads. Some of them are, oh, some of them, of course, are Native Irish. They've been educated extremely highly. Some of them in Clonmacnoise and places like that, where the standard mm. of scholarliness was extremely high. They aren't content with just writing what they're hearing from the old people. They want to hear, they think, it's, because it's an action-packed story, they add lots of things like, and then, whoa, and whoa, and they create almost like, you know, a Hollywood keeps resurging like old stories and then they make them more flashbang wallop. Yeah. And they remake them. But there's always these wee anachronisms chucked in. And there's lots and lots of anachronisms in all of the recensions of the time. And that's yeah. what makes it really one devil of a, a text to actually try and date. Kenneth Jackson had believed that it was, in fact, to, the, the famous quote, a window to the Iron Age. And yeah. yes, there are wee tiny windows to the Iron Age in it. Tiny. They're shattered. You have to put the glass together and you can imagine what shattered glass is like. And they're the size of a kaleidoscope. Because you'll also get the same with the early medieval period. For example, the weapons. I would refer anybody to the Eulidia series of books by Jim Mallory, who's interested in that. You get, it's a general mash. So it's a very disturbed context. Sometimes I think you're easier just going to uh, the Togol Bruna de Derga, but I'm not going to even go there on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that sounds interesting. With a lot of these texts that were written down at this time or slightly earlier and might refer to a time before that, it's they're so added to, there's different voices speaking, different people writing, different sources. It's sometimes the sources are repeat, repeat the story, but just in a slightly different way. And Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings That's of right. Britain is the same. And, you know, last month I talked to Erin um, Kavanagh about Taliesin and the, that's early, early yes. medieval 
subtext and it's you know as you say these are these are so layered and the layers are so unclear that it's it's really difficult uh, when i went to university i was told that a generation of archaeologists i think in maybe in english universities particularly studying prehistory was you can't get anything from the Irish sagas. You just just leave them alone. And that was kind of a reaction against some of the people talking in uh, about how it's a window, like, as you say, in the window into the Iron Age. But there's still the themes from the Tyne and the, uh, certainly I recognise them from On Raven's Wing, that come into our discussions of the Iron Age of, of Britain, not even Ireland, but of Britain, like like cattle raids as being just this endemic thing that everybody was doing apparently. And the only evidence we've got of that is the time. <laughs> That's Actually, it. Actually, no, no, it's not. Really? Is it? That's why I've got you here. What people call the white piece, lovely Y-shaped piece of uh, shiny metal fitted underneath a horse's jaw. They are basically a form of bosal. If you look at a polo pony, that's exactly how they work. Only they make them in like fluid rope and uh, modern things now. Then they want it to be very flashy. And uh, the Irish fitted up their horses with, of the very elite people, with these whenever they're riding them. And you would ride it actually with your hand very low. You're basically cattle cutting, what you see cowboys doing, what you see gauchos doing. And if that isn't a lovely piece of circumstantial evidence for cattle raiding, <laughs> I don't know what is. I love that. That's I love that there's such, you know, small evidence, but just there's that, that corroboration. But like you say, with the chariots as well, is the chariot is very important to um, Cúhollán particularly, but all of his fellow warriors from the Red Branch, you know, they all have their chariot with their driver and then they are the fighter in the back. And all those chariots then that are found as you say, in Wet Wang and, and places around that in the East Rising of Yorkshire are, um, you know, that's how they're, they're interpreted. That's right. uh, and it's, um, and it's kind of, there was this rejection of the myths as evidence and, but it's, it's just there all the time. It's, it hasn't gone away. The islands are so, archaeologically, there's so much connections that we're starting to see. There must have been very robust either trade, communication, intermarriage, and anybody to think that Ireland was sitting in splendid isolation through the Roman Empire would basically need to rethink the the logistics of the thing, especially when you've got things like Ogham stones showing up in Wales for the very, very end of the Iron Age, tipping into the early medieval. It's people are messy and things cultures are messy, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, for example, the game of Shinty up in Scotland, we were talking about Camogie and Hurley earlier. Mm -hmm. Of course, Hurling being the, the official game, but Shinty is very, very similar. Slight differences, but very similar indeed. Now, granted, these, as we understand them, they're early medieval. Edna O'Sullivan, Professor Edna O'Sullivan of UCD, would be the person to talk to about that. I rely totally upon his knowledge of such things. People don't wake up one morning and say, well, that's the Iron Age over and done with. Let's get on with the early medieval. It's so much yeah, more. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is true. I mean, we make these divisions ourselves, don't we? And then it's never quite like that 
I mean, going to to the actual archaeology behind the tie-in and, and on Raven's Wing, it's mainly set at Evin Maha, which is basically Navan Fort, isn't it? I mean, that is that is accepted. Navan Fort, um, and it's a great place to visit in County Armagh. Absolutely beautiful place. I'll have to come over and visit you at some point. Oh, you do have to. We have to take you down to Armagh. And it in yeah. itself also has, if anybody is interested in this, I do have to get a plug in. There are a series of journals. It's called Emania. And it's published by the wonderful Karachban, whose Daniel Buckner is the the driving force behind that. It was set up during the excavation of uh, Navan Fort, uh, Hockey's Fort, and Loch Nashade, the King's Stables, that whole ritual landscape around that area. It was set up to get the stories out, and it's probably one of the best journals that you'll ever read if you are into the Iron Age. It's an international publication. And it's worth going on to. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Navan Fort is really the hub of it all because that's where, of course, the branch of the Red Knights are. They are, of course, the creme de la creme warriors of the time. And Morgan Llewellyn has great fun with this. She paints a very colourful society. I'm not going to say that a bit of imagination does any harm to this. These guys would have had hellish egos about themselves. (laughs) They were. Godfathers. They were the local, the local boys, the local unit, whatever you want. I, I don't know. They they ruled their turf, and we can't think of them perhaps as being kings as we would understand kings, but they are certainly leaders of groups who share certain territorial or kinship would be a good word, and that certainly seems to be. Certainly, we see that idea of kinship. And family links is something that's very important because when the Vikings come along to the great round towers and monastic settlements later, whenever the the records of who was married to who, going back till God knows when, are destroyed, that's something that the monks find absolutely incredibly upsetting because who can prove what bloodlines are? Oh, there we go. The Irish were dreadful again. Bloodlines were connected to who? Or there is that, and I found that insistence of knowing who was interlinked to who quite fascinating, especially in the light of the new Grange paper that came out recently. And anybody Irish will get my reference. It's the equivalent of your mother sitting reading the death column in the Irish news and going, here, do you know who was married to them? (laughs) Ireland does not change. (laughs) <laughs> that has it's complicated by fosterage as well, isn't it? Because there are those ties of kinship through not just through blood, but through and and Cuellen is fostered to Connor Magnessa. That's is that right, right, Connor Magnessa. Is that right? Yep. And so on, and so he get and obviously then there is the the description of how the explanation of his name because his um his name was Satanta when he was born. Did I say that right? Satanta. That's right. But he got the name of the Hound of Cullen. The Hound of Cullen. Uh, Cullen is the blacksmith. He has a really big, nasty dog. The dog jumps out whenever poor wee Satanta's going home after a good game of hurling. It has a go at him and he knocks the dog dead. Needless to say, the smith is not too happy about this and takes it up with the big boss man. Um, and uh, Cuhullin basically says he will become the guard dog of Cullen and uh, guard his premises until he trains up another dog. Now, what's the fun part of this 
I'm just saying, is that there have been uh, dog skulls, very big, large, nasty dogs, skulls found in the King's stables, although they are late Bronze Age, possibly. I think somebody... This is it. Yeah, somebody... Uh, yeah, along with the monkeys, you know, or, well, monkey. Yeah, Navan Fort is amazing, and the, the complex around it, and it kind of is a bit more complicated than just being the seat of the kings of Ulster in, in maybe, maybe the first century AD or first century with a late bronze it's certain well possibly earlier than that but definitely late bronze. there's even been Holstadt brooch found at it really yeah. wow again it's all in a mania um but so yeah you know <laughs> there's uh, it's a fascinating site and it does it has a big big history that obviously even in the iron age it was old of course, it has a wonderful foundation. Actually, it has several wonderful foundation myths, depending on which one you want to believe. You know, such places do attract these stories. Yeah. You, you mentioned the, the monkey. Uh, it is nice to, to, and I know you did a thread on that recently on Twitter as well, about the, the monkey, which was presumably a gift, some kind of... Or, or traded or something? Almost surely. I mean, and it's what? They're knocking into the very end of the Bronze Age, into the earlier age. Yeah, I mean, imagine the distances that people are covering at that point. There again, when you think about it, all they have to do is island hop um, along the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, then you've got that short run across point of, uh, what do you call it, southern uh, France over into, um, what do you call it, Cork and Kerry. Yeah, yeah. And then travel up through the country. You've got lots of rivers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we can't discount anything. They were highly mobile people. And to think otherwise, we do them a terrible disservice, you know. I know. Whenever we do stable isotope analysis, we're basically finding out that people have moved all over the place. That's right. And I am... Um, mentioned it in my introduction which um you didn't hear rena but yeah i think that this enforced staying put in our very local area has been a bit of a, a weird experience for people for 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 humanity you know for all the evidence that we find has people moving from place to place several times sometimes that's <laughs> and that's great i mean the stabilized analysis is so is so useful to find that out oh, talking of which after that kuhalan uh, he wants to train to be a, a knight of the red branch and he's sent away oh but it's all to do with who he loves as well isn't it because he he's in love with this girl but her father doesn't like him i wouldn't have liked him either i would have had words yeah yeah well he's a bit unstable <laughs> let's put it that way look anybody whose eyes can pop and turn into a volcano yeah girl you stay away from him <laughs> yeah it sounds a little bit like the that berserker thing that you hear about Vikings maybe doing or not doing in later centuries, doesn't it? Mike Bailey, uh, Professor Mike Bailey here of the Dunder Chronology fame, has got a lot to say about Cúhalan and the whole transformation thing, that it's symbolic yeah. actually of various events in the sky. It's marking out the, the popping was in fact being able to see the uh, some comet or whatever. So fast fascinating book on its own right. Yeah, Mike Bailey does do some uh, some very interesting things to do with kind of, um, what's the word? It's catastrophe theories he about uh, how does. things... Yeah, yeah, I've always been interested. Oh, it maybe seems a bit too neat sometimes, though. But there's also, I remember going into a few years ago, 
depictions of people in the Iron Age and some um, do seem to be depicted with like one eye bigger than the other and or stark staring eyes or whatever um, as being maybe a depiction of this state that was known to happen to some people potentially. Yeah, so that, that was interesting. You, you make an interesting point there because in the time... There's a number of gestures, physical gestures, which you take on whenever something big is about to go down. For example, there's um, when you're putting a guess out on somebody, a guess is a, a, like a taboo. Whenever it's issued, it's very much a dyed-in-the-wool the thing. And whenever this magic is occurring, they're described as standing on one leg with their hands raised above their heads. Hmm. Almost like a bull shape horns. Yeah. Uh, whenever the incantation is made. Now, that is echoed yet again in the book that I'd mentioned earlier, another very ancient book, which might be a slightly less fragmented window into the Iron Age, they tell me from the language used, and that's the uh, Togelbrunna de Durga and the, destru- the destruction of the House of Durga. Yeah. And the Morrigan, yes, she pops up in that one as well, only not as attractive or sexy. And uh, she, <laughs> uh, she pops up in it this time uh, in her hag form. And when she's about to issue a doom in the toggle, she stands on one leg and takes on again this gesture. Again, she is seen as being one-eyed with one huge, mm. popping, angry eye. There are gestures, and I think that when we look at things like, for example, the Talilin and all the, the, the very strange little humanoid figures that appear on late Iron Age metalwork, I think we're maybe catching glimpses of legends, of, of ideas. So I'll never poo-poo and say they all vanished by the early medieval. It's just a case of knowing how they changed and what we'll never know what they started out as, you know? I know, that's the, that's the sad thing, isn't it? I mean, you, you, once you've got the early medieval stuff, you can think, uh, yeah, how far can I trace it back? And, but it's all, it's all educated guesswork, but guesswork nonetheless. I think you try to hammer down a chronology and then you hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's what archaeologists do, hammer down the chronology. Cúhollin gets sent on a journey to Skye, where there's actually a woman called, well, possibly Skye, or Skaha, is that right? Skaha, that's right. Who is a great warrior herself, and she trains Cúhollin to be even better, to be invincible, basically. So there's that. What I quite like about this is the is the old connection between Southwest Scotland and the islands and the Ulster area, Northern Ireland, and stuff. And it's it's I don't know what to what extent that it seems like a very small link, really. And I think maybe the links should be were probably a bit more, you know, complicated. This is where this gets interesting because. Certainly linking the Ulster cycle to Scotland is, I hate to say it, yes, we did have a sort of empire. In the early medieval period, there was, of course, Dalreada, uh, which the uh, people of the north especially took over chunks of Scotland, the Scoti, um, as they were were considered to be. But is it more that they're just the two areas are very closely linked rather than an, an actual? There's evidence, certainly, if the later uh, Iron Age, there's evidence of a huge amount of trade and also metal recipe, alloy recipe similarities. That's all to come in publications yet, but there is a lot. Oh, that's your... Yes, that's just yeah, a spoiler. Yeah, that's your speciality, isn't it? Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> 
<laughs> but there's a huge amount of similarities going on there. It could mean everything. It could mean nothing. It'll have to be widened out from horsey stuff to be meaningful of anything because otherwise it could just mean somebody from a workshop, you know, that came over with saying here, this is how I was trained to do this. So there's lots and lots of variables that might come into it. But certainly we know that there's a an M2 motorway running straight down the River Ban during the end of the Iron Age, uh, which is receiving stuff in directly from Northern Britain and Scotland. So that's certainly there. We can't we can't avoid that. That exists. The whole thing about Lincoln into Sky, etc. There might be a wee touch of Irish colonialism going on there from the early medieval period, and that they're like, hey, yeah, because you know we had the best warriors. Because guess what, we owned it, and there there may be a certain amount of that. On it again, it's that it's that shattered window, not just into the Iron Age, but also into the early medieval period. It's all very, it's all very mushy, and I think that battle is inevitably going to be won on linguistics. You know, he's right. I see. I think it, it's. I was really interested in that, and I'm. I want to go back. Well, I have to go back to the, uh, some kind of source in English, obviously a translation to, to look at this, because I don't know if you know, but I do, I do sword fighting as historical European martial art and I'm fascinated in going back and back and back. And obviously the earliest manuscript we've got as a fight book is only 1300, but you, we've, we've got swords obviously start in the, in the Bronze Age. So, but how were people using them? We've got no evidence of, of it. We've got nothing written down, obviously, because it's pretty prehistory that's the whole point but if there's if there's a, a you know a small explanation somewhere of some of the techniques then maybe that could but they all seem so so fantastical and completely impossible to do like leaping over this and that and twisting in the air to deliver a death blow it's like okay well um, that's not quite what i was looking for <laughs> but i wonder if there's if that's kind of morgan llewellyn and not not the original tie-in so i need to need to um have a look at that you myself mean, in the i mean it describes i mean there's you have to be able to balance on the end of a sword and or spear or whatever it is and there's all sorts of <laughs> athletics and you're back to the point that you made about gestures and how much yeah. stylized warfare that you know where combat becomes stylized and how much of it is simply made up by a pack of wee lads sitting in a round tower going here what do you think Koo Holland would do next oh I think he would go then whoa and they didn't have you know your your Marvel and your action films so they could have been very well making it up in their heads well that's it you see and then they get back to early I mean early medieval fighting is already is a very interesting too I guess but I want to know more about and try things out I mean I did I did get myself a a shield made. I, I probably need to send you over, actually. I'll, I'll get it once once the libraries are back. PDF of uh, Jim Mallory's book on uh, how weapons were used. The description of the kind of sword that in the time versus what they would have been using. And you couldn't, you couldn't cut someone's head off. You know, they're always running about cutting heads off, which, of course, is very Celtic. Uh, use that word rather advisedly. <laughs> we might get there in a minute, in a minute Rena. It's a very much that line of things to do. 
Regarding those short swords, you really would make a it wouldn't be a nice way to go. That's all I'm going to say. It really wouldn't. It would be hackety, hackety, hack. And it's not quite the ethos of these heroic warlords, or were they heroic? Um, I would beg to differ. Um, I would. I see them. I see my boys as somebody as something very different. In fact, <laughs> yeah, and girls as well. There's a few of them there. I mean, there's there is a third stuff, yeah. Um, as well as Skaha. And of course, there's there's the gay bulga that, uh, tell me if I said that wrong, that Kuhulin gets given as well as the, the spear that can never miss. Um, uh, that would be amazing. I would uh, obviously, you know, use it advisedly. And he, and he seems to be very... Uh, kind of wary of that weapon as well. He's not, not happy with it, really. It's described as being pronged in so many different ways that... Uh, yeah, I know. And it's not what you'd see either in the Iron Age or in the early medieval period, a pronged spear like you that. You would think to yourself, import, import. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I th- either... You don't know what people are... At this stage, I always say to myself, these, if we go back to the early medieval period, these are monks, etc., writing. They're yeah. trying to gather together as many of the old stories as they can. They're putting their own bits to it, the way they see it being, because they see chariots every day. They see swords, shortish swords every day. They see this, that. So, of course, they can't think of it as being anything other. It's the same way whenever people would have found little flint lithic things in the past. They said there were elf arrows and stuff like that. And little lightning bolts were were axe heads. You don't know what, whenever people found things, what story did they make about them? And we have no idea what's lost. Nobody has any idea what's lost. No, there are unknown unknowns. Oh, there always has yes. to be. That's what keeps us right. <laughs> You know, it is. It is. So you you kind of brought brought it up, and as our final thing, we should really talk about the elephant in the room. This this idea of of Celticness, um, <laughs> which Morgan Llewellyn obviously she adopted this. She she adopted a new name, which was very Welsh. She wrote huge amounts, uh, mainly about Irish stories, and was hugely into her background and made quite a thing of that and as you say it's you know the story of the tie-in and is is remade again and again and again and again for each each people who comes across it but it's it's really important in terms of an idea of identity do you think is it or I, that should be a but it should be a question is it important in terms of irish identity Celtic, Celticity. That's the big one, isn't it? I'm going to sit on the fence and simply say that it was very useful to, especially with Irish archaeology, there was a, a wonderful Prince of Liars called Charles de Valencay. He was from London, came over here in the 1700s. Whenever people like Voltaire were saying that everything Irish was rubbish, of course, uh, Lloyd, etc., had all churned out. They were starting to develop this, this Welsh background thing going on, this exceptional, this is our unique foundation story. And Scotland cottoned yeah. onto that too. And, of course, it was in a slightly different situation politically, which I won't bother going into here and now, but we didn't have the luxury of creating that mythos mm. for a, quite a while. Valencia, I think, 
he was he's referred to as the Prince of Liars because he uh, to give a slap in the face to people like Voltaire, who said that we were savages and barbarians, um, and that our antiquities were worthless. And of course, there were some were happy to trample through many things at that point. Valencia came up with all sorts of fanciful stories that were very sexy at the time. He used all the right buzzwords. Um, he tied them into, of course, it created trouble for everybody else afterwards, but his job was to try and preserve them. He was one of the Ordnance Survey men uh, who came over and he fell in love with the island and he wanted to preserve things and he made up all sorts of wonderful, wacky, crazy stories about them. And I wouldn't believe a word of them. Not a word. Um, but the thing is, what he found is still in the NMI. What he managed to record is still in the archaeological record. And in that respect, I'm grateful to him. However, the stories that he created, and then, of course, whenever the burgeoning nationalism started, there was all the beautiful squiggly wigglies of Latin derivative, um, because it's not Latin, let's admit it, it's derived from it, and it's insular. Mm. Um, it's the same for Britain as well. This was adopted as being the very, the very heartbeat, the Celtic heartbeat, and it was an identity which create, which was very convenient because I suppose Latin derivative just doesn't rule off the tongue as sweet. Latin derivative Twilight doesn't sound as good, you know. Yeah. Uh, for some people, if you're marketing the idea, where the situation we are today. It's the old antiquaries. They fell in love with the place. They made up a lot of very pretty stories with the evidence that they had at the time. We, don't forget, have got the benefit of science. We have we have the big guns of all sorts of wonders that they could have only dreamt of. But I am still gobsmacked but by how a 1940s uh, illustrious uh, professor of archaeology here, uh, Professor Joseph Raftery, Barry Raftery's father, was able to get probably the tightest chronology of the Iron Age, which has taken a number of us, myself, in that mix, a while using science, and he's got it very, very tight. But again, he probably in the tie-in as well as being a chronological thing that's gone by art styles, and there's a lot to be said for that as well. Celticity as a defining moment in art may be a useful gauge. Celticity as an identity, no. We're something much more messy on this island. Cúhollán, I can guarantee you, if he and his mates existed, were a lot more messy. They would have had many influences coming in from across Europe and, and Britain. They would have been mobile. They would have done horrible things because slavery is, again, is talked about a lot. I'm not going to let the Irish off the, off the uh, hook on this one, folks. We did it. I mean, it, we were famous for it. Mm, well, Britain is Britain has has done its more than its fair share on that side as well. That's right. Uh, Liam Hogan is a person later stuff of course but I mean it exists I mean it's again as you put the elephant in the cupboard They're, I don't think of them as heroes or kings I think of them as something very close to your local drugs barons hmm. that's how I think of them or your local paramilitary lads or they're they're very charming superficially they're very but would they see themselves as Celtic that's a big question. And I think they see themselves perhaps as having roots. But are those roots real? I don't know. That's it's a big story. The story goes ever on. 
It does. It does go over on. I think it's important that it was there and it has, it's been used politically, hasn't it? it has. um, but it's, it, it's, you know, it's good that, that maybe there's a time to think about, and you're promoting this, thinking about all the other influences. And I think, you know, we, we go back there's, there's lots, sadly, a lot of archaeology and, and historical stuff is used um, as a political tool to um, assert one per, one group's right to be in a place more than another group's and it's 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 something that we all have to fight against absolutely or you get, in Ireland it's never even quite as simple as that for example uh, the symbol of Ulster is a red hand and during my childhood of the troubles it was used by both sides of paramilitaries um because of the uh, the foundation myth that goes with it, it was for blood and Ulster and extreme extreme behaviour. So these things symbols can mean basically the same thing, but they can be interpreted in, by two different groups. Yeah, I was thinking more about the uh, in Britain, but it, but certainly in Ireland there are people who have, you know, kind of forced their way in. But you know what do, what does it's about how do you reconcile groups like that? I think that's that's too big a, a topic to go into oh in God, the last yes. couple of minutes. But I mean, the thing is, the symbols are always important. And all those celtic symbols are still floating around. Sometimes they're just pretty jewellery. Other times there's something... They can be used in many ways. And I find that longevity quite fascinating. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rena. It's been amazing to talk to you, and it's it was a really interesting book. And I would like to go back to the the tie-in. Unfortunately, like you, I can't read any of the Old Irish or Middle Irish. Or <laughs> I can't do any Old Irish. Good God, no! <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, but yeah, I'll try and get. You have recommended another book to me in the past, which I need to get to to go back into. But I would recommend this, as you say, it's a bit of a bodice ripper. It's it's of its time. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, but I, I like Sharon Penman's stuff probably a bit more, but it reminds me of her of her books. They're big, you know, they're historical kind of yarns that go on for ages and has loads of detail, loads of research, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily the way that the Iron Age Ireland was. was. My only critique was there wasn't enough sexy bits for me. <laughs> no, there weren't actually that many, and they were they were really kind of glossed over. I thought. Yes, they are. It's all very soft focus, um, which it makes me sound like a horrible person. But I'm going like I haven't read a bodice ripper in years, and I'm like, <laughs> I hope it's really Judas Fancy here, you know? Um, no, it wasn't. It was very, it was very tame. But, uh, oh God! But uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a fun read. It's a good entry level. If somebody wants to dip their toes, but as long as they know, it's got a wee bit of early medieval in there, archaeology, yeah. and Arnage, we're still unpicking that big hairy thread that's so tangled, and it's all tangled up with part of your history over there, and part of the history over yeah. in Europe, and even up in Scandinavia, uh, and northern Germany, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> Romans. Uh, yeah, um, mm-hmm. I will throw that one in as a complicated matter as well. But yeah, there's it's it's a good starter. It's fun. It's certainly not the worst I've ever read. Um, but if anybody was doing the tie-in recensions, I would definitely recommend either Kinsella or uh, 
possibly if they wanted to go really hardcore, go for Cecilio Rahali. That's if they want to get the real thing. But it's not... I think, that, I think that's the one you recommended to me, which I still haven't got hold of. Kinsella is, is much more accessible for people to read. Okay. It's probably one of the oldest stories in Europe. Yes, um, it is. It is, yeah. indeed. And uh, it's well worth reading. It is. And then, well, I'll, so, and then I'll talk into reading the Toggle. <laughs> yeah, you uh, you probably will. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not, I think my arm could be twisted. Thank you so much, Rita. And we will put all of the links to those various books that Rena's mentioned in the show notes and obviously know how to contact Rena and me on social media. If you've got anything that you want to say, let us know if you've managed to read the on Raven's Wing and what you thought of it. That Just let it send us a tweet or if you go on to archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash prehistories then you should be able to leave comments under the show as well so we'll be able to get your your feedback and uh talk about it on the next show so thank you so much rena very much my pleasure we stra- we strayed off in strange paths there occasionally but unfortunately that's the iron age for you exactly <laughs> Well, it looks like I've got a lot more reading to do then. Excellent. Many thanks to uh, Rena for that uh, episode. I hope you enjoyed it, us talking about On Raven's Wing by um, Morgan Cluillin or Sally Snyder. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Let me know if you go out and read On Raven's Wing or any of uh, Morgan Cluillin's other books and tell us about it. Did you enjoy them? Is there any that you took issue, anything you took issue with in the books? Did you enjoy the way that she told the stories? Yeah, just let me know. You can find me on at prehistpod, if I haven't said that before, which I think I probably did quite recently. Are there any other books or maybe films or even TV shows that you'd like to see get the uh, prehistories treatment where we dissect them, take them apart, slice them open and look at the evidence behind the stories that are being that are being told. Or maybe we'll find some other origin for some of the the ideas and the content and the look of these uh, media, different media um, showing what prehistoric life is supposed to be like. Tell me, let me know, get in contact. In the next episode, I'm going to be talking to Susan Greeny of English Heritage, who I have talked to before. She's particularly responsible for the interpretation at Stonehenge. And so I talked to her uh, quite a long time ago now about Bernard Cornwell's book, Stonehenge, and uh, kind of the outdated theories that were in that. She's doing her PhD at the moment as well on the Neolithic monuments of Britain and Ireland. So she's got expertise about lots of different places, as well as... Stonehenge, which obviously gets quite a lot of attention on its own. So we might not really be talking very much about about Stonehenge itself. My other guest is going to be Joanna Valdez Tullet. It might be Joanna. I will ask her when I talk to her. <laughs> and uh, she's just published her PhD, so she is Dr. Valdez Tullet, with the uh, British Archaeological Reports, BAR reports, on Atlantic rock art. And she's been uncovering some interesting folk tales to do with rock art as well, which obviously is um, usually slightly later in date than the Neolithic burial monuments and stone circles and so on. So, yeah, we're going to talk about all interesting folk tales associated with prehistoric monuments. Is there a site near you that it's got has got its own 
tales associated with it. Maybe those are actually quite recent or maybe they've been around for ages and they, you know, people have been telling them to their children for generations. We'd love to hear about it, particularly any that you've got near you. Obviously, it tends to be when you live locally to somewhere that you hear these folk tales. Or if you read some of the antiquarian literature, they often record the stories that the locals told about all of these prehistoric monuments. So either way, however you found out about them, please get in touch. It'd be great to hear from you. And hopefully you'll tune in for that episode. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.